This is the Star Coach Show with Meg Rentschler, episode 349. Mindfulness. What exactly is that and how do we become more mindful? And as coaches, how do we help our clients lean into their autonomy and how mindfulness can help them restore that autonomy? That's exactly what we're going to be talking about today with my guest, Dr. Gail Gazelle. So join us as we explore six mindfulness practices to restore autonomy. Welcome to Star Coaches, the show for professional coaches that brings you coaching strategies, tools, and resources. Whatever your focus or niche, take a front seat weekly as industry leaders, decision makers, and innovators share their wisdom and expertise on the ins and outs of successful coaching. Now join your host, Meg Rinchler, as she connects you with your star coaching potential. Hello, welcome to the show. It's great to have you join us. I'm excited about the show we have today. We're giving you really practical tips to engage in more mindfulness and ultimately really step into your autonomy and energy and make choices that work well for you. So I'm super excited about that. And I'll tell you more about my guest and about the show in just a minute. I do want to welcome you to the Star Coach Show. If this is your first time visiting, we're going to explore different strategies, tools, and resources to help you listen more deeply, engage with others at a more effective level. If you're building a business, dive into the business building shows that we have. If you're a leader who's using coaching, we have a plethora of shows around leadership and coaching. So you can explore all the shows at starcoachshow.com. And I'm your host, Meg Rentschler. I'm an executive coach and a coach mentor. I have been working as a coach for the past 15 years, both in helping coaches be the best coaches they can be, as well as helping leaders really lean into their communication styles, their confidence and curiosity as leaders. And this show fits right in with that. My guest today is Dr. Gail Gazelle. Dr. Gazelle was my guest on episode 213, where we talked about helping physicians beat burnout and thrive with coaching. And we really talked about how coaching helps professionals be the best professionals they can be. Well, Dr. Gazelle has written another book, and we thought it would make a whole lot of sense to bring her work back in front of you. Dr. Gazelle is a former hospice physician. She's a part-time Harvard Medical School assistant professor, and she's a master certified coach. She works with physicians and is a mindfulness meditation teacher. You'll see how that all rolls in together in what she's going to share with us today. For the past decade, she has coached over 500 physicians and physician leaders. We are focusing in on her newest book, Mindful MD, Six Ways Mindfulness Restores Your Autonomy and Cures Healthcare Burnout. Now, what we talk about in this interview and what will become clear to you really quickly is that while Gail really focuses in on physicians and healthcare providers, what we're talking about today is applicable regardless of who you are and what you do. And we go from sort of that, what is mindfulness? And we hear about it so often, maybe it becomes 
like overplayed to the place that people don't even know what it is, but they kind of work. They talk about it to what is it and how can we apply it? And that's what's so important. I am so excited to bring Gail's work to you because she's been featured in such diverse venues as the New England Journal of Medicine. She's been CNN, Medical Economics, and even in O, the Oprah magazine. So Gail has all sorts of wisdom to share. She's delightful to spend time with. And I encourage you to get out pen and paper because there is so much she shares in today's interview. Let's explore mindfulness with Dr. Gail Gazelle. Dr. Gail Gazelle, welcome back to the Star Coach Show. Such a pleasure to speak with you today, Meg. I was so excited when I got your email, letting me know that what you've been up to and that you've got some new work that you're putting into the world. And that gave us the opportunity to reconnect, see what's happening in each other's lives, and then get you back in front of the audience to share this incredibly important information about mindfulness and how mindfulness can make us actually healthier in mind, body, spirit, that life is a busy place. You work with healthcare professionals, huge burnout rate, and your coaching with that population is, first of all, I just want to thank you for that because I really admire healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, all that are out there trying to keep us healthy and keep all of us on track. And then, you know, who's their person? And you're their person. So with that, I would love... We're going to talk about mindfulness practices today, and I'd like to open it up with mindfulness. We hear a lot. It's been a bit of a buzzword or a a craze, like, you know, let's be more mindful. And I wonder sometimes when something is that popular, if it ends up being like people don't even know, they begin to use the language without really knowing what it means or what the impact of that is. So could we start with what is mindfulness? It's a fantastic place to start because you're exactly right. It's become a a buzzword, a catch-all. It may not really have its true meaning. And I think when people hear the word mindfulness, they also have images of monks meditating on a mountaintop or maybe aging hippies coming from Woodstock. And they think to themselves, well, that isn't really for me. I'm a down-to-earth practical person. That's just a bunch of navel-gazing. And so I think that's a really good place for us to be very clear that mindfulness is something very different. Mindfulness is about awareness. It's about awareness predominantly about what's going on inside of us, what our minds are up to, this instrument that we all use in all of our waking hours, and yet we don't really get an operating manual, do we? No. So with mindfulness, we're getting to know our own patterns of mind. We're getting to know the thoughts and stories that our minds are producing. Because I think as we'll take a deeper dive into today, Meg, some of those things are incredibly helpful. But some of them are take us down dark alleys of worry and fear and preoccupation and anger and frustration and annoyance. And they're not exactly helpful thoughts or stories. So with mindfulness, we're getting to know what's going on in our own mind in the service of training our mind to focus where we want it to, to to, we're training the mind to really be our friend 
rather than at times kind of our foe. Right. And so mindfulness is so much more than just sitting on a cushion somewhere and, and doing sort of an inward process. That's part of it. But it's really more the, the full toolkit that all of us need to be the captain of our mind, the master of our mind, rather than what many of us are, which is really the captive. Exactly. And I find that so often people think that whatever thoughts, that they think about their thoughts, that they're just, that they can't be, that they just are what they are. And in fact, it's all made up in many ways. I mean, where we choose to put our energy, where we choose to put our focus. So this practice of being a master of your mind rather than being sort of subjected to whatever thought of the moment, whether it's an automatic negative thought or some rumination about what's happening at the moment, let's let's get in the driver's seat, huh? Instead of sort of be driven around by our thoughts, what would happen if we got into the driver's seat of that? This is very familiar territory for coaches in particular, because we can often spot when our client is engaged in in an unproductive story. Oh, my boss is miserable. All she does is micromanage me. That job is terrible. If she doesn't leave, I'm going to have to leave. We might hear that story as a coach and we might think to ourselves, well, there's probably some truth to this. This might be a challenging boss, but maybe there's a deeper truth. Maybe the client needs to sort of step out of some of those stories and tell us a little bit about what said boss is doing well. Maybe there's more nuance here. Maybe alternatively, there are ways that if the client steps out of that story that the boss is all bad, that the client would enjoy their job better, would maybe even be more skillful at working with a difficult boss. So in a sense, coaching, I might think about it as mindfulness in action. We are helping our clients be more aware of what's going on for them and in what ways they are either helping themselves or perhaps contributing to the very difficulties that they're seeking our guidance for. So I I think this is very familiar territory for us as coaches, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And with that, what I love about being able to offer with the show and partner with you to do today is to give the listeners, and we talked about this right before we started the interview, how exciting that this is, because we get to give the listeners tools to use with their clients. We get to give the listeners tools to use with themselves. (laughs) And while you coach healthcare professionals and physicians primarily, and this certainly applies to them and, and what they're doing, the reality is every, it's not exclusive to that population. What, you're, what we're going to talk about today and these mindfulness practices that you have honed for your new book are so valuable that I love when I'm able to bring content that says, okay, coaches, how are you applying this to yourself? And how can you use these tools and these practices to enrich the work that you do with clients? So how Without a doubt, you know, my new book is called Mindful MD, Six Ways Mindfulness Restores Your Autonomy and Cures Healthcare Burnout. And I have had so many people come up to me and say, well, I'm not a doctor and I'm not even in healthcare myself. And yet I took so much away from your book that applies to me in my job or with my teenage son or in my relationship with my mother-in-law or whatever it is. So 
Yes, my focus is healthcare. You know, I'm a former hospice physician and I've coached well over 500 physicians and physician leaders. At the same time, a lot of these themes are universal. They're part of the human condition and none of us get an operating manual of how to use this instrument again, our own minds. And it's really a gift for ourselves, for our personal and professional relationships once we learn how to do so. And so that's what we're going to do today. I encourage everyone to, this is probably one that you really want to be able to lean into. Of course, you can listen again and again. When we think about these mindfulness practices, you have identified six, and we really want to walk through six of them. I mean, obviously, if you want to deep dive into these, we definitely want get that book, explore even more. But Gail's been kind enough to say, let's explore these, all six of them, and and do some tools and strategies that you can begin to apply immediately. So I love your first one. I mean, just even the way that the first one rolls off the tongue. Recognize that you are not your thoughts. Boom. What do we need to know about that? Well, it's a fundamental aspect of mindfulness, realizing that the mind is basically a thought machine. The human mind produces between six to 20,000 thoughts a day. If you do the math, that's a crazy and almost frightening number of thoughts per minute and per hour. And that's what our minds are doing. They're creating thoughts. Some of these thoughts are true and helpful. Some of them are completely untrue and completely unhelpful. So, for example, many of us have thoughts that we're an imposter. I I love, you know, giving workshops and keynotes about reducing and vanquishing the imposter syndrome because the imposter syndrome is really just a thought process. These are thoughts that we can have. We show up, we give a presentation, we run a meeting, whatever it is that we're doing in our line of work. And then we start thinking to ourselves, well, gosh, I'm not very good at this. Or our mind says to us, boy, I think people think that I'm some kind of phony, that I don't really know what I'm talking about. A whole cascade of unhelpful thoughts. These are thoughts that don't help us do better in our job. They don't help us feel good about ourselves. They keep us living kind of small and not framing our authentic voice and really bringing all the good that we have to those around us. That's just an example of unhelpful thoughts. The beauty of recognizing that we are not our thoughts is that we don't have to believe each of these thoughts that our mind comes up to. We can begin to challenge them. We can question, is this true? Or is this simply the negativity bias that my mind is drifting down and telling me all the ways that my mind is accusing me of not being good enough? Right. And that's really powerful. That's powerful when we can realize we don't have to follow each and every one of these thoughts. We have a choice. We can let these thoughts arise in the mind, pass through, almost imagining them like clouds passing through on a beautiful sunny day, because they arise, they pass through, and then they're gone. And that's the truth of each and every one of the thoughts that each and every one of us has ever had. None of them last. They're simply transient mental events. And once we, again, once we see that for what it is, it's like the emperor has no more clothes or the wizard. You know, the curtain's been pulled. And all of a sudden, we have so much more autonomy because we realize we have a choice about whether we follow and attach to any particular thought or, again, like the clouds, whether we simply let it pass by. 
So to me, it's very fundamental to oh, help yeah. kind of heal in the human condition, to help free us in a way from, in a sense, you know, being, I, I kind of call it the captive, but being at the mercy of mm-hmm. our own minds. Well, and you know, we have so many signals to kind of make us aware because sometimes those automatic thoughts are in there working away or they're sort of under the radar and doing their work before we're tuned into the fact that for the past 15 minutes, I've been ruminating about whether I'm good enough or whether I'm an imposter or comparing myself to the other speaker or whatever I'm doing. But if I feel, so part of the signal that our body gives us is how are you feeling? And if you're feeling not so good, if you're feeling insecure or uptight or anxious, likely that's triggered by some thought that you're having. So good indicator to kind of go in and say, what am I thinking about right now? And how can I let that drift and not own it and and have it become me? I love, recognize that you are not your thoughts. Love that first Very practical exercise. It really helps us manage the difficulties that we face in a much more skillful way. And isn't that what we want for everybody that we serve, whether it's in healthcare or coaching or whatever industry we're working in, is what we want for our loved ones. It's what we want for ourselves. And it's it's actually the place where we can exert control in a world where there are so many things that are out of our control. And that's the beauty of it as well. That's a great uh, kind of roll into... Uh, your second, which is uh, one of my, I mean, everyone is my favorite, but I love step out of your mental stories. Let's talk about that. Well, the human mind is quite the storyteller. I think it was Mark Twain who said something like, I've been through terrible things in my life, most of which never happened. In other words, all those terrible things that we go through are just stories that the mind spins. For me, As a physician, coaching physicians and healthcare leaders, people in healthcare are really struggling now. The demands in the post-COVID world are just immense. The under-resourcing, the understaffing, all of the below-grade tasks. And that's not the only industry where we're seeing this. What I see as a coach is that so many in healthcare are walking around with a story that's basically, I don't like working in healthcare anymore. Healthcare is, is draining me. It's costly working in healthcare. This just isn't working for me. This is bad. I'm not sure I can stay. So what that means is that on top of the difficulties that that physician or nurse or therapist or technician is facing, they've also got the story that they have to face, the story, the overlay that things are bad. And what we find, you know, when we begin to look at these stories is that sometimes it's the story that's causing us more anguish than the actual difficulty that we're facing. Right. And and when then we look for evidence to support that, and mm-hmm. it's the lens that we see through, and it just becomes all-consuming. I remember when I was a therapist, um, often, let's say if, if a client ended up going into the hospital for a little bit, they would get so worked up about what people were thinking about them and what, how could they ever return to work or school or whatever their platform was. We would spend so much time prepping them to step back into their lives. 
And I would say to them, you know, in my experience, your anticipation is going to be far greater than the reality of the event. And we as human beings have a tendency to sort of put ourselves into the middle of the universe. Chances are other people are not thinking about us as much as we're thinking about ourselves because, you know, we are sort of framed that way. So that point that you have in that these mental health or medical professionals, that it can just build the story can make the environment that much worse, because it has a way of multiplying upon itself, doesn't it? It definitely does. And in the book, in this section about stepping out of mental stories, I talk about a construct that some of your listeners may be familiar with the two arrows of pain and suffering. So in other words, you have a car accident, a minor car accident, nothing serious. And that's the first arrow. This bad thing has happened that you wish had not happened. But then the mind goes off into, uh uh-oh, this is dangerous being on the road. This could have been so much worse. What if I'd had a worse accident? How would I have handled that? Oh, no, I wouldn't be able to keep working. What if I wasn't able to put food on the table for my kids? What if my teenager is out driving and then he or she is at risk? These are the second arrows of pain and suffering. The first is the actual fact, car accident. But the second is where the mind takes us. And guess where these second arrows are pointed? Well, they're pointed nowhere other than at ourselves. They're arrows of pain that the mind generates that only increase our suffering. And this can be really helpful for all of us to unpack, like if we're going through something difficult, to ask ourselves, well, is this a first arrow or a second arrow? Because we can often begin then to see, wow, a lot of what's going on for me, a lot of my fear, the anticipation that you're talking about, Meg, before an operation, for example, is simply these stories that my mind has gotten stuck in nothing wrong with me. This is the human condition. This is what all of our minds do. So we're not blaming ourselves. We're just simply noticing with mindful awareness, the pattern that our mind is up to. Because once we realize that, we see that we have a choice. That's the beauty of mindfulness. That's the autonomy that mindfulness restores for all of us is that we have a choice. In every single moment of our waking lives, we have a choice about how we interact with the difficult people and circumstances that we face. So thinking about that first and second arrows, which I go into in detail in the Mindful MD book, I think can be a really helpful takeaway. So helpful. You know, when I teach cognitive coaching, one of the things I tell the coaches is cat the mind is a very fertile place for catastrophic what ifs. So what ifs, catastrophic what ifs can go on and on and they build upon and they tend to be initiated by some small event, like you said, and a real event, but then it just becomes what if, what if when I did critical incident debriefings for companies or for banks who were robbed is something I would do a lot. The tellers or the employees would go from somebody came into my workplace with a note and got money that was not theirs, made an illegal withdrawal to what if he'd had a gun? What if he killed me? What if my children were orphaned? What if, you know, and and it just, because it is a, it's an event that we're not expecting and I'm not minimizing the trauma that comes from somebody coming into your workplace and turning it on end. And 
it becomes what's the story that's building upon the story that's building upon the story and how much better we could do in those critical incident debriefings. One of the key things I would do is, and what actually happened and grounding people back into, let's talk about the actual event and how everyone is now and how we're going to move forward. Because boy, those catastrophic what ifs, they're pretty powerful. Indeed, they really are. And once we can shine a light on them with mindful awareness, it's a game changer. It really is. We develop so much more agency, i.e. autonomy. And we, we can control the things that we can control. So I already have goosebumps for all the great information that Gail has shared, and we're only two into the six. (laughs) So with the third one, we want to reduce reactivity. What does that look like? Well, let's say you're a parent and you get a text from your teenager and the text says, take me to the mall. Typical teenager. They don't ask, hey, how are you doing, mom? How's your day going? Would you have time to take me? Would you be willing? Yes. Exactly. So you get that text. And what happens? Well, you think to yourself, don't they see that I'm working today? Don't they know that I carry big responsibilities in my job? Hmm. I took them to the mall three times last week. Don't they appreciate all that I do for them? In other words, we become very reactive. And the temptation is that we send a nasty text back, an inflammatory text. Don't have time or thanks, or whatever, right? We react in kind, which only fans the fire. And whether that's our teen or our coworker or our spouse or whoever it is, we all know that pattern. We can be reactive. With mindfulness, we become aware of our own patterns. And I'm talking about myself here. My son is 26 now, but boy, I was reactive when he was a teenager. But once I noticed my own patterns of reactivity, I realized, wow, you know, he's just being a teen. This is what teens do with their parents. They yank their chains, right? What's really his job? (laughs) There you go. That's developmentally on target. But once I could notice that pattern, my reaction to my son just being himself as a teenager, wow, it kind of took the wind out of its sails with mindful awareness. Wow, this this is where my mind takes me is this pattern of reactivity. I was able to retrain myself so I'd get one of these, you know, short and terse texts. But I realized, you know, he's just being himself or maybe he had a bad day. Maybe he had something happen with a girl that he had a crush on or whatever it was. And I could hold it so much more lightly. I didn't have to engage with it in the same way. I could maybe send him a little smiley face, you know, instead of doing something just the opposite. So again, that's the autonomy that we can build over the very human patterns of reactivity that we all have. And we can realize that we can kind of nip things in the bud rather than contributing to fan the flames of whatever the conflict is. So that's what's really exciting to me about reducing reactivity, because you know, we live in a we live in a complicated world. Many of us say that the thing we wish most is world peace, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all get along? Yeah. But we don't always know how to get along. Exactly. We learn in our families, and and for me as a physician, it was really you know kind of exemplified in my training. We learn these patterns of reactivity, and we don't have peace in our relationships. So then how can we expect the world to have peace, which is just an amalgamation of a lot of human relationships? 
Exactly. So to me, this is a really powerful way that mindfulness restores autonomy and does a lot more than simply curing burnout. It really can help heal a fractured world. And then I think about how we can raise awareness of our clients, of their reactivity. Well, first, raise awareness within ourselves of our own reactivity. But <laughs> as we're working with clients, that might be the thing that that shifts. Raise aware. How are you reacting to this? What power are you sort of giving the situation or the other individual over your emotions, over your reactions? How do you want to own that? How do you want to be in this situation? And really, just that, you know, reduce your reactivity. So powerful. Love that. Yes, because I love that question. Where are you giving away your power? That's just a fantastic coaching question. And also, you know, how's it working for you? You know, the vernacular, how's this pattern of reactivity working? What would you gain if you could reduce this reactivity? And then all of a sudden, the client is much more motivated to make these important changes. That's so much a part of our job as coaches is maintaining motivation for our clients. We all know how hard it can be to maintain motivation for any change that we want to make. So those kind of questions help the client begin to see what's in it for them. Oh, love it. All right. Now we want to, everybody get ready to lean into compassion, connection, and purpose. Well, particularly in healthcare, but I think much more broadly, compassion, connection, and purpose are kind of the fabric that holds us all together, particularly connection and compassion. Why do people go into jobs in healthcare to help fellow human beings? But in the modern world, with corporatization in healthcare and other fields where the emphasis is more on the bottom line, than the process. It's all about productivity, doing more with less. That phrase, the fabric of connection and compassion. And we may not be able to change the corporatization of education, government, you know, healthcare, pick your poison, but we can change how we interact with others. And when we're really aware and intentional that we can play a part in kind of reweaving that important fabric in healthcare, for example, then with that, again, that mindful awareness, we can be very intentional about how we act. The other piece of that that I spend a lot of time on in this chapter in Mindful MD is the whole importance of self-compassion. Many of us learn to take care of others, to put the needs of others before ourselves right? Some of us as coaches, as women, as caregivers, personally or professionally. And we can be so harsh with ourselves. I think everybody listening to this podcast understands that. And what I've seen as a physician is that one of the most powerful medicines on the planet is self-compassion. Self-compassion heals us. Self-compassion helps us be more productive. It helps us actually keep our well of compassion for others as opposed to resentments about taking care of others. It also reduces kind of the inner bullying that many of us subject ourselves to when we, you know, we are harsh with ourselves, we criticize ourselves for the smallest infraction. And so self-compassion is powerful. It's really powerful at healing us so that then we can heal others which is the role we should all be playing in the world around us. So, you know, in the book, I have a lot of examples that I I, uh, anonymize, so to speak, who that individual is. But 
I follow a primary care doctor who was very harsh with herself, and she would go through her days criticizing herself, feeling like she wasn't a good doctor. Other people were smarter. Other people were better doctors. Other people were more kind to their patients, more efficient in their practice. And it was really wearing her down, not just at work, but it was wearing her down in her home relationships as well. And we did a lot of work around building that muscle of compassion for herself. And it was a game changer for her. It was just beautiful seeing how she blossomed. She became so much more confident of her abilities. She was really more present with her patients because she was really tuning into them as opposing as opposed to having this inner dialogue of inadequacy. She did better with her teenage son. She was more compassionate with him, and that led to some improvements in their relationship. So I've seen over and over and over the power of self-compassion to really help us do do all the good that we want to do in the world. It's not selfish. I was going to say, what a ex- beautiful example of how that's not selfish. That's actually how we are best with others. We've got to start with self-compassion. A great example of sort of putting the oxygen mask on first, right? <laughs> yes, really. It's such a powerful metaphor. So good. And that energy drain that happens when we're having this negative critique of ourselves or this, we might not even be aware of it, but this conversation that's going on in our head criticizing, I ask my clients, you know, would you ever say something like that to your friend? Let would you and they I wouldn't even say something like this to my enemies. Okay. And yet you and yet this is yes. the conversation that you're having with yourself. Yes. And when we apply mindfulness to ourselves, we begin to see, wow, I'm being really mean to myself. I didn't even realize I was telling right. myself all these horrible, painful, shameful things. And I have a choice. Yes. I can really see in the ways that that's, that's actually holding me back from bringing my gifts and talents to those around me. And I don't have to listen to that inner boy. No. I can ask to kind of sit there over in a chair and mind its own business. <laughs> Give it a name. Tell it to go sit down. <laughs> Yes, powerful, really really powerful. Love that. Okay, now, and this is sort of, it makes me suspect that it might be close to also looking at, instead of what ifs, looking at what is, the concept is for number five, work with what is. So I put my theory out there, but I'm curious, where do we go with this one? We could go in a lot of directions with this one. I think a lot of us indulge in a bit of magical thinking, right? If we go back to that example that I led with a a while back about a a difficult boss, you know, I don't like my boss, you know, he or she micromanages me. They're not really a good leader. I don't know why they were picked. I can't be happy working with this boss. So we kind of develop these, these stories. I can't be happy unless that's a bit of the what if we tell ourselves we need something to change. For us to be happy. And often we put our fingers out that it's out there that needs to change. Yes, I need to make more money to be happy. It might be, you know, I need more affection from my spouse. Who could be happy, you know, with a spouse that doesn't, you know, put their arm around my shoulder when we're out in public or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And by telling ourselves these stories, this magical thinking that happiness is somehow around the block. It keeps us from being happy, satisfied, and fulfilled right here, right now. And the mind is not a very good predictor. Just think for a minute about things you may have said to yourself. Maybe you're feeling overworked, on the edge of burnout, and you have a vacation to look forward to. 
oh, wait till I get on that vacation. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to be lying out in the sun. I'm going to be drinking a mimosa. My kids are going to be building sandcastles on this beautiful sunny day. Well, you get there and the weather's bad, the mosquitoes out, and your kids are fighting with one another and you're miserable. (laughs) But your mind has kind of been in this story. And then all of a sudden, you feel even worse because you're not meeting this expectation that the mind created. So that's what I mean about working with what is. Work with reality. Seize your happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, sense of purpose and meaning right here, right now, where it's available to you. Because we can't predict the future. That's the one thing we can be sure of is uncertainty and impermanence and all of the change around us. And yet we all deserve to be happy right here, right now. In these moments, the only moments that are the real moments of our lives, all of that prediction about the future, we don't know what's going to happen. Right. That's what I mean about, and I, and I think it's useful to think about almost this malady, or I, I call it a disease, the I'll be happy when disease. So powerful. And and the reality is, I'll make every moment the best moment I can engage with at the time, because if it's raining and the kids are fighting and the mosquitoes are bad. What can we do to turn this into a gift or an opportunity right here versus my vision has been blown. Therefore the whole vacation's blown. That's right. Yeah. It was a terrible vacation. It was terrible. I'll never go on vacation again. And then I come back and I have more work to do because I was on vacation. So yeah. there we just kind of build on, on that negativity, right? And I cover this in a lot of depth in Mindful MD. Six ways mindfulness restores your autonomy and cures healthcare burnout. Because what we're talking about, Meg, is restoring autonomy. Whether you're in healthcare, banking, you know, education, or or a stay-at-home mom or dad, this is the autonomy that each and every one of us can have. And that's what I want for all of your listeners is to have that autonomy. It just is so empowering. I'm I'm, I'm revved by this conversation. And so we want to do number six, but I'm going to recap the first five, just so we want to recognize that we are not our thoughts. We want to step out of our mental stories. We want to reduce our reactivity, lean into compassion, connection, and purpose, work with what is, and what is that sixth mindful practice that you encourage us all to take part in? Well, the sixth is really the culmination of the other five, cultivating upward spirals. So important, what we understand now about the incredible power of positive emotions, for example, of happiness, joy, hope, savoring, awe, all of these these wonderful emotions that are helpful in the moment. But if we think about Barbara Fredrickson's broaden and build theory, for example, They actually help us learn. They help us grow. They help us be creative and innovative in our work. They help bolster our relationships. And this has been shown in many studies, both in kids and in adults. So when we cultivate upward spirals, we can lean into the goodness that is here. I find it so interesting, again, as a physician, that with all the levels of burnout in healthcare and in other fields, we forget the good. On a most basic level, you know, in any minute of our day, our heart is beating, our lungs are oxygenating, our our brain is working, our gastrointestinal tract is taking whatever the heck we eat and processing it. There's so much to feel grateful about and not a Pollyanna kind of gratitude, 
simple appreciation of what is. So when we follow these other five ways, the natural outcome of that is that we can move ourselves upward rather than downward. And when we do, there is a lot that is in it for us and for those around us, because that's the paradox. We often think I have to be hard on myself, kind of nose to the grind. I'm never going to get anything done if I don't kind of berate myself or beat myself into a pulp. But modern motivational science helps us understand that that's not true at all. That what motivates us to grow and change in the ways that are important to each and every one of us is actually being kind to ourselves and appreciating the good that is already here. So these are not fluff and woo-woo kind of ideas. These are very practical, and they have practical applications for each and every one of us. So those are the six ways. And, you know, each chapter in the book ends with a Q&A because there's skepticism about these things, and there's questions that people have. And then each chapter after the six ways gets into a very practical exercise that the reader can do so that they can incorporate these concepts in their everyday life. Well, I am so grateful for you bringing this information forward and doing so in such a way that we can clearly see this isn't woo-woo, this isn't fluff. This is actually the nuts and bolts of being a healthy human being and that we are you know, driven by what happens between our ears. And it's not always facts what happens between our ears. So how do we step into that autonomy? How do we empower ourselves to do that? And then through these incredible tools that Dr. Gazelle has shared, how can you empower your clients to think differently, to engage differently, to be willing to lean into all that they can be rather than what they're telling themselves they can't be or they can't do. True. Yes. We're going to have links to connect with you and your material. One more time, the name of your new book is Mindful MD, Six Ways Mindfulness Restores Your Autonomy and Cures Healthcare Burnout. And I want to encourage listeners, they can download a free chapter at gailgazelle.com forward slash mindful MD. Beautiful. We will have links for that in the show notes for this episode as well. Gail, thank you. Thank you for bringing your expertise forward, for giving us these tools and really challenging each of us to think differently about the stories we tell and the way that we show up in difficult situations sometimes. Such a pleasure talking with you today, Meg. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Absolutely. So there you have it, another episode with an incredible guest sharing her expertise. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Gail Gazelle, the work she does, grab that free chapter to her book, go to starcoachshow.com slash 349, starcoachshow.com slash 349, and pick up those links in the show notes. Also in the show notes, there is a link to explore our membership where Dr. Gazelle shares her pearl of wisdom with me around whether coaching physicians is a match for you and whether you have to be a doctor to coach physicians. Now, next week, I am honored and delighted to bring Cecilia Enquist to the show. Cecilia and I are going to be talking about coaching ethics. Now, if you're like, oh, I don't want to talk about coaching ethics, I got to tell you, 
Cecilia does an incredible job really bringing our ethical standards to light for us and letting us know what is the process that the ICF has in place if there's an ethical concern or an ethical complaint. It's really in-depth and and really enlightening. So I hope that you come back next week and explore with us. And finally, as we're wrapping up the show today, just want to let you know that if you are in need of mentor coaching, especially if you're wanting to get it done before the end of the year, this is a great time to explore mentor coaching with me at starcoachshow.com slash mentor, M-E-N-T-O-R. That's starcoachshow.com slash mentor. I have one more mentor program starting this year. It will get your mentor hours in before the end of the year. In case you didn't know, mentor coaching must run over a minimum of three months. So my fall mentor program might be a perfect fit for you. Would love to work with you. Explore the details at starcoachshow.com slash mentor. Until next week, this is Meg Rentschler wishing you the very best for your coaching success. Have a fantastic week.